Good morning, Sojourn. The Word of God from Psalm 22, from suffering to praise. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, yet I have no rest. But you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted, and you rescued them. They cried to you and were set free. They trusted in you, and you and, and were not disgraced. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him save him. Let the Lord rescue him, since he takes pleasure in him. It was you who brought me out of the womb, making me secure at my mother's breast. I was given over to you at birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Don't be far from me, because distress is near, and there's no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong ones of Bashan, encircle me. They open their mouths against me, lions mauling and roaring. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put me into the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers have enclosed on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. They divided my garments among themselves, and they cast lots for my clothing. But you, Lord, don't be far away. My strength come quickly to help me. Rescue my life from the sword, my only life from the power of these dogs. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of wild oxen. You answered me. I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you in the assembly. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. All you descendants of Israel, revere him. For he has not despised or abhorred the torment of the oppressed. He did not hide his face from him, but listened when he cried to him for help. I will give praise in the great assembly because of you. I will fulfill my vows before those who fear you. The humble will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules the nations. All who prosper on earth will eat and bow down. All those who go down to the dust will kneel before him, even the one who cannot preserve his life. Their descendants will serve him. The next generation will be told about the Lord. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people yet to be born. They will declare what he has done. 
the word of God for the people of God. Good morning. As Jeff mentioned earlier, I'm Craig Doctor. My wife, Courtney, and I are now very glad to call Sojourn our, our church home and you all our church family. And it's my pleasure this morning to explore with you the next psalm in this summer's sermon series, Psalm 22. About three years ago, while still living in St. Louis, COVID became a terrible force. I know for some of you that uh, that caused you to suffer great loss. But we all, we all felt its effects. We all felt the, the effects of its restrictions and, and isolation in different ways. These trials that we faced were not the result of anything we had done, and so in that sense, we were all innocent sufferers in the midst of that. In the midst of the mandated isolation, the ever-present growing and looming threat of the virus, virus that enveloped us, most of us began to feel terribly alone and increasingly vulnerable. I know my family and I did. To help combat that, um, we decided, or I should say at least my kids agreed to, meet weekly via Zoom. And we would take turns facilitating conversations on various psalms. Psalms that gave voice to the wide range of our deeply felt emotions and that would help us to keep our eyes fixed on the Lord, our one true hope in the midst of our trials. To help guide us in our conversations, we used James Boyce's commentary on the psalms. Along the way, my daughter Shelby made notes in, in the margins of her copy. Notes and, and markings that captured the wide range of emotions that she felt in response to the text. Markings like stars or exclamation points to stress what was really important or, or a truth that she needed to hold on to. She also had some question marks flagging some points of confusion or questioning, what's going on here? And she even noted an occasional yikes. As we go through Psalm 22 this morning, we'll find that it in particular gives voice to the innocent sufferer. And along the way, it highlights for us profound truths to hold on to. And it gives voice to the full range of emotions experienced by the psalmist, from the darkest depths of lament to his brightest heights of rejoicing. Or as Shelby would put it, the stars, the exclamation points, the question marks, and even the yikes. We'll also find that Psalm 22 is both deeply personal and profoundly prophetic. It's deeply personal because it gives voice to the grave suffering, the well-grounded hope, and the 
ultimate deliverance experienced by the innocent Davidic king and God's people whom he represents. It's also profoundly prophetic because it is ultimately fulfilled by the greatest Davidic king and truly innocent sufferer par excellence, the Christ Jesus on the cross. As you can see, this psalm has a whole lot of moving parts. So, how should we approach it in order to better understand what's going on here and then how it applies to our lives today? In response to that question, I hear one of my professor's words ringing in my ears. Context is king. In other words, in order to better understand a biblical author's intended message and also then how it applies to our own lives today, we must first better understand the historical and literary context in which the author wrote it. In this case, there does not appear to be a particular event in King David's life that served as the impetus behind his writing this psalm. However, there are general and historical and literary contexts that provide us with the essential insights that we need. Insights that the authors of a recent article on Crossway's website helpfully provide. They tell us that it is the king who is in view throughout the Psalter, while at the same time, the king represents the people and the two are inseparable. If we miss this, if we miss that point, we will individualize the Psalms and read them as though they are talking about us. An interpretive mistake that would rob Christ, the ultimate Davidic king of his glory, and rob us as well of the original significance. These authors go on to recognize that the Psalms are ultimately the prayers of Jesus Christ and that he alone is worthy to pray the ideal vision of a king suffering for righteousness and emerging victorious over the host of evil. Jesus said the Psalms speak of him they speak of the king, and, and he, the son of David, again, the, the king par excellence. Therefore, the experiences and the emotions of King David in the Psalms, his passions, his sufferings, his struggles, his heartaches, foreshadow the experience and emotions of the Lord Jesus, the messianic king, the Christ, who, had, in fact, has taken on all our sufferings and emotions. As we'll see, even he on the cross felt abandoned by God. And yet he triumphed. And in doing so, both accomplished our redemption and showed us how we may triumph also. With this historical approach and royal orientation in mind, we see our Savior more clearly. So we find in all this that not only is context king, but also, in this case, the context is the king. Initially King David, 
and ultimately King Jesus. And at the same time, remember that the king represents the people and the two are inseparable. Or as Pastor Isaiah put it last week, as it goes for the king, so it goes for the people. So in light of all that, we're going to break up this psalm into three parts based on the innocent king's and our victory through his grave suffering, well-grounded hope, and ultimate deliverance. And we're going to explore these in light of their original Old Testament setting, their fulfillment in Christ Jesus, and then their application to our lives today. Okay, so that's where we're headed. Let's get started. Part one, the innocent kings and our victory through his grave suffering. Psalm 22, verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. If we were making notes in the margins, this is where we'd write a very big yikes. As Psalm 22 comes out of the gates with what one author described as the most anguished cry in human history. It's the most anguished cry because it would be absolutely awful to feel alone in our suffering, abandoned by family and friends, but it would be utterly terrifying to feel that God had abandoned us also in it. But that's how David felt. In the midst of grave suffering, he felt that God had turned a deaf ear to his cries, that he had withdrawn the comforting light of his presence and left him truly alone, truly alone in the deep darkness of his distress and suffering. Yikes indeed. Over the following 16 verses, David's expressions of, dis of distress grow strikingly graphic and intense. However, remember that context is king. And for these verses, Derek Kidner observes that there is no incident recorded, in, uh, recorded of David that can begin to account for what he describes here. He adds, most modern writers try to find a setting for them, either in the life of David or some later group of people, but it's impossible to do that in this psalm. Psalm 22 is a description of a crucifixion. And crucifixion was not practiced in the time of David or, many or for many centuries afterward. Therefore, the best account for this is in the terms used by Peter concerning another psalm of David. Being therefore a prophet, he foresaw and spoke of Christ. Psalm 22 is then a prophetic picture of the suffering endured by Jesus when he died to pay the penalty for our sins. Consequently, God's people had to wait until the events of the crucifixion 
to unfold their meaning with any clarity. Well, being where we are in the story today, we're going to explore verses 1 through 18 in light of that clarity in the context of King Jesus on the cross. This perspective makes this passage just that much harder to read because it puts us in the position of looking through our Lord's eyes and hearing his thoughts as he hangs on the cross, enduring immeasurable suffering for us in our stead, a plight so dire that he just... uh, that he despairs of life itself. To help us to see how Jesus fulfilled these words, we're going to do something a little out of the ordinary this morning. Courtney is going to come up for a minute, and we're going to go back and forth. I will read from Psalm 22, and then she will read from the Gospels. So we can see Jesus' direct fulfillment of these words as he hung on the cross. Beginning in verse 1, Psalm 22, we read, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27, 46, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, Lemai, Sabachthani, that is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night I find no rest, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. He trusts in the Lord's Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him, for he said, I am the Son of God. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of patience surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like ravening and roaring lions. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. John 19, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Thank you, Courtney. If you are noting your emotions in in the margins, what would you write here? If you are using Shelby's method, you'd likely write a tremendously horrified, heart-heavy yikes. As darkness swept over the land, Jesus' body felt disjointed and spent. 
His strength and his, and his mouth felt as dry as a baked piece of clay. And he was terribly alone. He was terribly alone while the strong ruthlessly surrounded and, and closed in on him. Furthermore, not only was there no one there to help, but also those there actually mocked him in his suffering. Wow. But here in verse 1, we'd also likely note a couple of question marks. One question mark in response to our wonder over why the Lord would willingly take on and suffer so deeply, so profoundly, the guilt of my sin for me. Fortunately, Scripture answers that question for us in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But the other question mark that we might know would be in bewilderment. As we ask, how is that possible? How could one member of the Trinity turn his back on the other? Our question is not unique. In fact, James Boyce writes, the idea, the very idea that Jesus could be forsaken by God has been so disturbing to so many people that various theories have been invented to explain it. Some have argued that Jesus only felt forsaken when in fact he was not. However, according to the teaching of the New Testament, Jesus was indeed forsaken by God while he bore the sin of his people on the cross. This is the very essence of atonement. Jesus bearing our hell in order that we, we might share in his, in his heaven. But again, how could he be forsaken? How could, again, one member of the Trinity turn his back on the other? I don't know. I cannot explain it. It is what Carson and, and Beale describe as one of the most impenetrable mysteries of the entire gospel narrative. But, Boyce continues, I believe this is what the Bible teaches. So great, so great was the love of the Father for us, and great was the price Jesus willingly paid to save us from our iniquities. This is where we would certainly note a star or an exclamation point, because our King Jesus selflessly sacrificed himself and suffered the Father's wrath in our stead in order to save those who have placed their faith in him. That is an eternal truth to hold on to. And a king, I think that we would all gladly submit to and follow today. The gravity of suffering that that Christ Jesus endured on the cross physically and, and, and immeasurably so, spiritually and emotionally, was unique to Jesus and something that we can't even begin to get our minds around. But while we can't relate to the gravity of his suffering, we can relate to it generally because we too suffer. We too suffer in the midst of very real troubles today. 
Troubles that can also feel gravely dark and unyielding. Troubles in which we can also feel terribly alone and vulnerable. And we find ourselves crying out, Where are you, Lord? Do you not hear me? Do you not see me? Do you not care? And as one author writes, we wonder how our loving Heavenly Father can stand idly by while we are in such distress. Like in Psalm 22, some of our troubles and and suffering are physical in nature. For instance, some of us may have some long-standing illnesses or, or chronic pain, and we have no idea what's behind it. The physicians have exhausted their options, but the root cause remains elusive or inconclusive. And we are left feeling alone in our suffering with no answers and no one to help. For some, we do have absolute clarity on the cause of our illness, but the longer-term ramifications of its effects feel so ever-present and so unyielding that they incessantly weigh upon us and leave us feeling worn out and dry. For others of us, our troubles and suffering are the result of, of grief and great disappointments or the result of emotional or, or relational wounds, including those who experienced as children. Wounds that no matter how old they are, feel just as raw and tender as the day that they were inflicted. And so, when those wounds are touched in the course of our daily lives today, they trigger strong emotional responses, emotionally charged and divisive responses that can harm others and our relationships with them. And over time, the effects of those wounds can intensify. They can feel like they're intensifying and closing in on us as the harmful narratives that were impressed upon us or that we in turn tell ourselves become ingrained in our thinking and our everyday lives. Ever presently, relentlessly, and ruthlessly surrounding and attacking us. Attacks in the midst of which we feel terribly alone and and vulnerable. Attacks from which we feel little hope of escape or deliverance. Attacks that rob us of the fullness of the life and joy that is ours in the Lord Jesus. Whatever the root cause of our suffering may be, we may find ourselves continuing to lift that up to the Lord the great physician, and asking him, pleading with him for deliverance and healing. But over time, we may find that things just don't seem to be getting any better. We still struggle with the same old afflictions, and we still feel feel stuck in the same old patterns of emotional or relational turmoil and discord. So what do we do with this? Well, going back to our discussion on context, when King David and King Jesus spoke of their suffering, they were speaking not only for themselves, but also as the representatives, representative heads of God's people 
they were speaking for all God's people. And as the ideal Israelites, they provide the pattern for us to follow in our own suffering. So what does that pattern look like? How can we hold on to any sense of hope of deliverance? Turn with me to verses 4 and 5 as we explore part 2, well-grounded hope. Verse 4, And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Here again, the king responds by expressing his well-grounded hope, by bringing back to mind God's faithful deliverance of his people in the past. Immediately following that, in verses 6 through 8, the attacks and the king's distress further intensify. To which again, again, he responds by reflecting on God's faithfulness. But this time, his prayers and expressions of hope become much more personal. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth. Upon, on you I was cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Here the king's hope is well grounded in his own personal experiences of God's faithfulness to him. It's as if to say, you've, you've not only been there for their people, you've been there for me, even from the very beginning. In light of that pattern, one author helpfully observes that the recurring remedy in the Psalms is to fill the mind with memories of God's past faithfulness to assure us of his present faithfulness. That is what our king modeled for us. And so that is the tact that we are to take as well. What do you do to intentionally remember God's past faithfulness? His past faithfulness to you. Do you journal? Do you... Maybe highlight dates on a calendar. Whatever form they take, whether physical or, or simply mental markers, it is so important to intentionally remind ourselves of our experiences of God's faithfulness and deliverance from our trials. Emphasizing the importance of this and, and, and how that then nurtures hope, Richard Doster writes, when we feel alone or abandoned, such memories empower us to move forward in faith and with confidence. When we're overwhelmed by circumstances we can't control, or when we're afraid and, and mired in doubt, our stories and Israel stories and the gospel stories remind us of who God is and what he's like. And they inspire us once again to envision a hoped-for future. Right now, some of you may be thinking, you know, it's not hard to imagine God being willing to deliver us from our trials and suffering when they're not due to 
any sin or wrongdoing on our part. <clears throat> but what about when my sins are due, or my sufferings are due to my sins? Do the Psalms speak to that as well? Is there also hope of God's deliverance from that as well? Well, yes and yes. David, who, as we saw, wrote uh, his well, of his well-grounded hope of deliverance as the innocent sufferer here in Psalm 22, also wrote of his sure hope of deliverance from his sufferings when they were the result of his sins. Psalm 40, titled, My Help and My Deliverer. Beginning in verse 11. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My, my iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. As for me, I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Jesus came so that we would be forgiven. If, if you will simply repent from sin, to turn from the sin and humble a reliance upon Jesus, we will be forgiven. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But there may be others here who, who have confessed your sins to God, but and you, and you know that God has forgiven you, but yet you, you struggle to, to fully embrace that forgiveness, that forgiveness that is yours in Christ. And, and so you allow the shame of your sin to relentlessly haunt you, to relentlessly weigh upon you, and to hinder the full freedom of, 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 of joy that is yours in the Lord. If that's where you are this morning, then please take note of John 8:36. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And also, Romans 8:1. There is therefore no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so going forward, Whenever you hear an, an, an accusing or condemning voice in your head, grab hold of these verses and, and wield these victorious swords because in Christ Jesus you are truly and fully free. Free from both the guilt and the shame of our sins. And you are free. I'm free. You're free. In Christ Jesus to experience the fullness of the life and the joy that is ours in Christ. But getting back to Psalm 22, this psalm necessarily addresses suffering that is not due to sin for an important reason. Namely, again, because the psalm is ultimately fulfilled by Christ Jesus, 
who alone is truly sinless and who alone is the ultimate innocent sufferer. And he needed to be. He needed to be in order to offer himself up as the perfect sacrifice in our stead, as the pure and spotless lamb. And that leads us right into our third and final part, ultimate deliverance. Verses 19 through 21. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Here we see the climax of the story that is the point of greatest tension. In this case, the psalmist's highest point of distress. And here, the author uses the, the, the bullseye device that Pastor Isaiah discussed last week to again direct our attention to it. To see how this works, look with me at verses 12 through 16. Note the references to a bull in verse 12, a lion in verse 13, and a dog in verse 16. Then, in verses 20 through 21, note how these are listed again, but in reverse order. The author's intent here, the author's intent in doing so, is to focus our attention on what lies in the middle of that pattern. In this case, verse 19, which again is the climax of the story, the point of greatest tension and distress. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O my help, come quickly to my aid. It is right after this most desperate of pleas that we experience the, the radical turning point in this song. The point where Kidner notes the alternate cries and prayers give way to praise. They give way to praise and to a broadening vision of God's perfect rule. The following more literal translation of verse 21 will help us to see that turning point more clearly. Save my mouth, save me from the mouth of the lion and the horns of the wild ox. You have answered me! Exclamation point. With this, we can better recognize the absolutely 180 degree turn in the psalm's tone. Swinging from the gravest suffering of wrath and alienation uh, from the Father, all the way to the full restoration of his presence and favor. From the, the, the greatest depths, the deepest depths of utter despair to the soaring heights of victory on the cross. Verses 27 through 31 depict the all-encompassing magnitude of that victory and all-sufficient victory and deliverance from suffering that will extend not only across the globe but also across the generations. Starting in verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nation shall worship before you for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. 
even the one who could not keep himself alive. Prosperity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. That he has done it. Jesus echoes that declaration of completeness and victory when he says on the cross, it is finished. On that note, in John 16, 33, Jesus tells his disciples, I have, I have told you these things so that in me, in me, in Christ, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. In this, we recognize that we won't fully experience deliverance from our suffering in this present age. But we wait with full assurance that one day, one day we will experience complete and eternal deliverance from all our suffering. However, even in the midst of our suffering today, we can have true peace in Jesus, knowing that Jesus has overcome the world and that Jesus has won the battle against evil, against sin, and against death. Therefore, as D.A. Carson tells us, even though, even though pain and suffering continue in the brokenness of this present age, those who are in Christ share the victory he has won. They know who triumphs in the end. They know the end of the story. From this, they take heart and begin to share his peace. Those of us who already know Jesus recognize that we also play an active role in the Lord's ongoing work to reach and save others across the globe and across the generations. And we do so as God's instruments to reach I'm sorry. We do so as God's instruments in proclaiming the goodness and mercy of God to those who don't yet know him. That said, if you don't yet know him, if you've not yet placed your faith in him as Savior and Lord, I ask you, out of love and concern for you, to please carefully consider and seriously explore the truth of who Jesus is, the truth of the great price he himself paid to save sinners like me, like all of us, and our desperate need of him as Savior and Lord. Friends, the, the good news of the gospel, the good news of the gospel is that the innocent king has won a great victory through his grave suffering. And as a result, you and I have hope. We have a secured hope that is well-grounded in Christ. It's well-grounded in Christ and our ultimate deliverance in Him. Please pray with me. Heaven, Heavenly Father, we just come here grateful and yet bewildered 
bewildered at, at uh, a level of love that you have, that you so loved us, that you sent your Son, your only begotten Son, to take on flesh, to become one of us, in order to live the perfect life that we could not live, and to offer himself up as a perfect sacrifice so that all who place their faith in him would be forgiven. Their sins would be atoned for, and they would receive adoption into your family and eternal life with you. Lord, that is a profound mystery. And we say thank you, as we know it's true. Dear Jesus, thank you. What horrific suffering you endured on our behalf. It's so hard for us to even read this passage. But we thank you. That's all we can say is thank you for lack of any other words. We thank you for that. Lord, we pray that you would help us to rest in you, to keep our eyes fixed on you, to hold on to the profound truths that we have in you of not only eternal life, but a sure hope of deliverance from our suffering and the peace that we have in you in the midst of the, of the suffering that we experience in this present age. And Lord, please take us and use us. Use us to share the good news, the very good news, the greatest of news with those who don't yet know you. And Lord, please be with those who don't yet know you here or are, are listening to this, this uh, service on, online. Lord, I just pray that you would please um, help them to recognize, Lord, who you are, dear Jesus, of, of the gravity of, of our brokenness and our desperate need of you as Savior and Lord. Lord, please save them. And please take and use them as well in your ongoing, wonderful, mind-boggling, joyful, eternal work. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.